Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Reverend Naomi Washington Leopard. With a life path that took her from Detroit, the home of Motown, to the birthplace of a lush acoustic style known as the Sound of Philadelphia, it's no wonder Reverend Leapart delights in singing. She sings with the Philly Threshold Choir, a group whose mission is to bring audible comfort and kindness to people in hospice care. She's also a board member of Roots of Justice, a collective of anti-racism trainers and organizers. Naomi is the Faith Work Director for the National LGBTQ Task Force. The task force is the country's oldest national LGBTQ justice and equality group. Her work continues the task force's Institute for Welcoming Resources constituents and other faith leaders to reflect on the status and the needs of a welcoming movement into the future. Before joining the task force, she was the suburban community organizer for Power, a multi-faith, multi-racial network of congregations in Metro Philadelphia. She also served as co-pastor and minister of music at the Wisdom's Table at St. Peter's United Church of Christ. She's affiliated with the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries and the United Church of Christ and earned the Master of Divinity degree from Lancaster Theological Seminary in 2016. That same year, she was invited to serve as a member of the Faith and Spiritual Affairs Advisory Board of the City of Philadelphia Department of Behavioral Health and Disability Services. And in 2017, she was appointed by Mayor John Kinney to the Philadelphia Commission on LGBTQ Affairs. Naomi's work is included in the volume From Generation to Generation, a commemorative collection of African-American millennial sermons from the Festival of Preachers 2010 to 2015. She's also an adjunct faculty member in the Theology and Religious Studies Department at Villanova University, where her classes look at things differently, like exploring zombie sci-fi, two biblical accounts of walking undead, Lazarus and Jesus, and the theological and practical assumptions we hold about life, death, and the space in between. Naomi shares her life with her wife, and their curious, energetic, and future Oscar-winning fifth grader. Naomi, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. 
How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, that's great. So, you know, you're 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 a girl from the from the big D. <laughs> you know, and you know, I often have people who, you know, they claim different cities, but you know, you'll always be a Motown maven. So what was that like? I mean, when did you leave Detroit as a child and musically, how has coming from those two cities that have such rich musical background influenced you? Well, so I, I grew up, all of my um, elementary and, and middle and high school years were spent in Detroit, and I left when I was 17, uh, going on 18, to go to college in Philadelphia. Um, so um, my formative years uh, were spent in Detroit, and um, I, there's no denying the influence that Detroit culture, Detroit religious culture, and music culture in particular have had um, in my life. Um, you know, I say that I have been in lots of cities and listened to lots of radio, and there's no radio better than Detroit radio. <laughs> in terms of mm-hmm. the eclectic mix, um, the respect that's given to um, the Motown sound and to, you know, New Jack Swing and 90s R&B, I mean, all of that is played on the contemporary station. And so if you're growing up in Detroit, you get that kind of diet. And so my appetite for music was shaped um, by Detroit radio. Um, And then I grew up in a Baptist church on the west side of Detroit. And so being exposed to the Detroit gospel sound, um, influenced by, you know, the Clark sisters and then Fred Hammond and um, all the people who, you know, would be in a a, uh, Detroit church on a Sunday morning randomly. I mean, people we, we sort of have lionized in the gospel field, but they were just, they were Detroit ministers of music, and they were Detroit musicians. Um, and so being able to be um, nurtured um, in church spaces by that music also uh, has shaped me um, deeply. So, I, you know, I, there's, no, there's no denying it uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting that, that you talk about but because there is that mix. There's something about, I mean, I, mean, I, was, I had done a feature once on, music and Detroit has exported so many great musicians but there has always been that crossing of a line that crossing of influence and I think that we we really recognize it particularly as we talk we reflect on the passing of Aretha Franklin between the spiritual the religious being in church and soul you know it's just like a different way of doing doing that walking that walk you know how how what you hear in music and then to see someone maybe in the club making records, but then they come back to that religious route. Yeah, that's one of the things I deeply appreciate about the Detroit music scene and the shaping I got from that scene is that there were no, there were no boundaries. There, there was no binary, sacred and secular. All of it is, is life. And so finding the holiness in the soul music, and finding the soul in the holy music. I mean, all of, all of that um, really influences not only my musical sensibilities, but my theological sensibilities to learn that, that all of life is, is a circle, all of life is mixed in together, and to ask people to break themselves up into these pieces is really harmful and does a violence to people. So that was really important to my um, upbringing and my formation. 
So when, once you got there at, 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 in school in Philadelphia, did you ever have any battles like, hey, The Temptations or Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes? You know, that's not even a thing. Until, I don't know what <laughs> – uh, it's not even – there's something called the Philadelphia Sound. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I – and people really might disagree with me, but I think that there's not the same sense of reverence for um, the, the tradition of, of music here like there is in Detroit. Um, and so I don't know, you know, something about Detroit cultivates this, this reverence and this respect for the musical tradition. Um, even if it's not your primary cup of tea, you, you acknowledge, I mean, even if people didn't know Aretha Franklin's music, there, there was a sense that something, something we have lost a giant. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, and it was a multi-generational kind of grieving that happened. Um, mm-hmm. For Aretha, so I don't I don't know that that same level of respect and and veneration exists here in Philly. I know I know that's right. It, it is. It's, it's sort of it's really it's a very different thing. So you know you talk about how you know growing up you had music, but you also had church. When did you feel that this was where you wanted to take your life? Theology to be to learn more to really get into your spiritual life? Um, so, you know, looking back on my life, I think that there were signs and there were certainly nudges I had uh, to, toward ministry, toward the religious life as my professional life. But I ignored those signs and was in denial of those signs. <laughs> so, um, you know, like I said, I grew up in church and was in church practically every day and then went to a Christian, a private Christian parochial school for elementary and middle school. So seven days a week, really, I was exposed to um, the religious life. Uh, and then uh, when I got to college, joined the gospel choir and joined a church, a uh, Baptist church in West Philadelphia where my college was, got very involved in uh, that community. And my friends in school started calling me by the nickname of Reverend. Now, hmm. that's, not, <laughs> that's not a shortening of my name, and that's not kind of a playful, fun nickname. I mean, they called me Reverend, and that, wasn't, that didn't uh, knock me in the head the way it should have <laughs> about, you know, how people saw me in the world and how people acknowledged what might be able to contribute to the world. Um, it was not until after college that I began to take seriously the idea that perhaps um, my life's work could be uh, with and for um, specifically black Christian communities. So um, it took me a long time to really accept that. But, but then once I did, um, things just made much more sense to me. So, oh, this is why, you know, I really get into sermons and I'm taking notes and I'm you know, listening to them on my free time, or this mm. is why I love to, you know, sit in religious studies classrooms and ponder, you know, the interpretive meanings of biblical text, um, or this is why I'm in church 24-7. You know, um, things just made much more sense to me uh, once I said, yes, I will pursue um, this curiosity I've always had about things of God. Uh, so, 
it, it was it was a later aha moment for me, but as I look back, I realize that there have always been kind of signs pointing in this direction. When they, their friends are calling you Reverend, did you ever want to, like, rebel against that or sort of, I mean, it was like, like you said, later on you said it all made sense. But at, in that moment when they were calling you Rev, you know, Reverend, did you want to rebel in that? Did you want to sort of say, hey, you know, I'm cool. I'm, I'm the cool kid. I'm not Reverend. And th- then how were you, after you came to that aha moment, were you able to reconcile? Because I know that there's probably others who are going like, well, if you put that label on me, I'm not cool. But to reconcile that, it had nothing to do with your coolness. Yeah, uh, I absolutely tried to rebel. Once I got out of my hometown, once I got out of Detroit and away from my grandmother's watchful eye, you know, she was the person who <laughs> took my brother and I to Sunday school and to the many, many worship services that we went to throughout the day on Sunday. I mean, she was the person who really nurtured our religious lives. Um, once I got away from that, I was like, well, I'm not going to church. And so my freshman year in college, I think I've tried, I certainly spent the whole first semester of that freshman year away from church. I said, well, I'm not going. Nobody's making me go. Nobody is checking in on me. Um, but then <laughs> I started to feel a little, you know, a mix of guilt and my own yearning to be in religious community. And uh, so I, I started going back to church. I did it on the on the on the fly. I mean, I didn't share too much of what my church social life was with my college social uh, network. Uh, I would have choir rehearsal, or we would have a young adult event or something, and I would just quietly make my way to the church. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, I, you know. Again, I was trying to live, you know, two separate lives. Not not to. Um, be hypocritical, but because I, I thought this isn't, this isn't going to be cool. This isn't going to be received well. I was meeting people who were not shaped by religious communities, maybe people who didn't believe in God, and, and I thought that my churchiness was going to be a turnoff. <laughs> it was going to uh-huh. be a liability to me. Um, but but I, soon, I soon got over that. I met some people at college who were just as churchy as me, uh, and um, got to know some people at the church who were also interested in the life of the mind and other interests that I had outside of church. So, you know, the more I got older and matured, the more I was able to integrate my religious and spiritual self with my other self. Mm-hmm. Now, as you, you started to recognize that this is, this is a path for me, but um, did you also look at it and see that particularly, I mean, in church, all of them, but even in black churches, although it's better now, that the role for a woman sometimes wasn't, I mean, just like you worried about about your, your friends on one side going like, oh, but how welcoming it would be, what were the opportunities, what would you be able to, to do there? Would you be limited? Did you worry about that, that gender role? Um, I did. I didn't, even when I um, said yes to the possibility of a kind of professional career in religion, um, I still didn't imagine myself actually working like as a pastor or Mm. um, 
certainly I didn't, I, I don't know that I saw myself working as a theology professor either. Um, I thought I'm going to just, if I pursue graduate school um, in the study of religion, I will just be more equipped to be a thinking Christian person, or I might be able to teach a Bible study at church every now and then. You know, I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't see for myself um, a role in, you know, official church leadership. Now, that's not because I hadn't seen any women in leadership. So I feel very grateful that I um, saw women ministers and women pastors, um, not in my childhood, but certainly post-college and as an adult. Uh, so it wasn't that I didn't think that women could um, lead and that I didn't see any women leading, but I didn't imagine that for myself. Um, I didn't imagine that for myself. Um, because, yeah, there are barriers. Uh, you know, when I went to seminary, I went to a seminary that was associated with the um, United Church of Christ, which has, ordaining, has been ordaining women to ministry since the 70s. Um, and so I was there introduced to a denomination that wasn't arguing about the, the fitness for ministry that women have or have or don't have. Um, so I did make the transition to leave um, my official Baptist affiliation to join the United Church of Christ because I knew that was a fight I wasn't going to have to have. Mm. Uh, so I did make that decision um, because I just, you know, I, I wasn't going to have time to be arguing with people about whether or not um, I was actually called to ministry. Um, so there was a sense that, okay, the, the barriers – there will be barriers unless I make a unless I make a move um, to another denomination. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, because I know I have a a good friend who um, she was Episcopalian. Well, she still is. But I mean, even I mean, there were so many challenges, you know, as far as being a woman, a person of color, and then she came she came out, and it was like, oh. You know, yeah, that was just like another another hurdle to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. When you leave, yeah. okay, and you're an open, you're out, you're yeah. a lesbian, you've got a lovely wife and daughter. How did yeah. that affect? I mean, like you said, you know, it's like it's like not three strikes, you're out. You had like three strikes, <laughs> and you were still in. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will um, say that that the transition to the um, that initial affiliation with the United Church of Christ also brought with it a certain level of welcome related to sexuality as well. Um, the, the UCC ordained the first um, LGBTQ person uh, also in the 70s, and so um, that also wasn't going to be a conversation. But I will say that, um, you know, just because ordination is available, to queer people in the church doesn't mean that people find it easy to find a, a place to, to work and a place to belong. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there is concern, particularly for people of color and black folks in particular who are in the denomination, because it's a predominantly white denomination. There is some concern that, you know, I'm here and I'm legitimate. I got my papers, <laughs> but, I, mm-hmm. but I can't find a place because there's not, there's not a congregational community that's wanting to call me, that is interested in my kind of leadership. Um, so, and I will say that I have experienced 
um, I, I grieve about the ways I feel shut out of black um, religious spaces. Um, and and I, I have no way of knowing whether it's because I'm a woman or because I'm queer or because I'm, you know, I wear T-shirts that say stuff like, you know, I'm, I've heard enough from old white men, I, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, but but there has been um, a feeling of, of isolation, especially given that I grew up and was formed in black religious spaces. So for the, for the lion's share of my ministry activity now to be in white religious spaces feels like a, a – feels – like this, this isn't how I imagined it. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't how I imagined it. Uh, so I have some grief about that. I have some sadness about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and it and it's funny because like I've talked to other, I mean, some really dynamic uh, women who have, who are of faith, who have gone on faced like some some horrible things. You know, I think of Kamarian Anderson, who's in Texas, or. Um, uh, I can't think of it, Bishop Abrams, who's right there. I mean, who's also from Detroit. Um, Right. And, and, you know, and Kamarian talked about, you know, how when she started to transition, losing, you know, her faith and then to try to to get back in there and trying to do this work. Um, I know of uh, another woman who's in in Baltimore, Monique Ellison, who was originally from Detroit, was assigned to a parish in, I want to say, in Lansing, and when she, it was like, don't ask, don't tell, when she decided to leave authentically, you know, yeah. she lost that. And it was a while before she found, you know, a, a welcoming, affirming parish where she can minister at. Do you, is there like a sisterhood of of your cohorts, of your other people, like a Kamarian uh, uh, Bishop Abrams, I mean, where you guys sometimes sort of sit and talk about, what this means, the loss you feel, um, uh, and how you're going to move forward. Do you, like, you know, have, like, a support network? Yeah. Actually, Kamarian and Bishop Abrams are part of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, which is the, um, the um, multi-faith, multi-denominational organization that Bishop Yvette Flunder started um, in the 90s um, to to be exactly that, a, a space of refuge and community for black LGBTQ and same-gender-loving people who had been marginalized and, and shut out from um, faith spaces. Um, it's an opportunity to develop our leadership, to give us spaces to lead and proclaim and to um, uh, start our own communities when that, when that is what is, is, uh, we're feeling led to do. So, yeah, I have found in TFAM um, that solace and that community and that support and solidarity um, that enables me to be in what feel like to me sometimes wilderness spaces um, because those are the spaces that will call me and pay me uh, to do the work that I've been been gifted to do. Uh, so mm-hmm. TFAM is, is, is a lifesaver for so many of us. You know, I think it, it, you know, I, I, I applaud people who, like you, like, like Marion, and because as you hear these stories, because there's this, and this mantle of pain and hurt, you know, to be like, you know, 
overcome, that you're dealing with, but then you also have members of our community, I mean, where we still hear the stories, the trauma that they feel of being either alienated from their church home or continuing to go to those churches and sitting quietly in their pews, hearing, feeling that sense of not being welcome, of being that somehow, you know, that, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin, you know, but that's, that's still right. out there. And, you know, how do you, on, on some of those days, and I know that you also work with people who are in hospice care and who are dealing with a whole lot of things, that you saw, how do you then some days like, so like, okay, I need to put me here on the shelf and pick up me and go in here and do the work? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, you know, um, the the sort of metaphor that I learned while I was in seminary that comes from the work of Henry Nouwen, who was kind of a mystic uh, theologian. That we are we are in some ways wounded healers. We are we are both tending to our wounds and trying to be um, conduits of healing at the same time. And so, um, you know, the awareness to um, approach this work with sensitivity and humility, knowing that sometimes our own pain um, can infiltrate the, the moment of ministry and cause more harm than, than good. Um, and so really having, you know, spaces of accountability, really minding your own therapeutic wellness. Um, uh, like we said with TFAM, having spaces of community where you can go and get re- replenishment as you need it. Um, those have been really important kind of spiritual disciplines and practices that um, are sustaining because, yeah, that, you know, uh, to know that we've come so far, I mean, with um, not only politically but also ecclesially in the church, um, there are many more welcoming churches now than they, there were even 15, 10, 20 years ago. We still have so far to go. Uh, it can be discouraging and disillusioning, uh, and it's really important to find find spaces of joy, find spaces of celebration, um, and also be able to find spaces of rest. Like today is not going to be the day I fight. You know, I mm-hmm. I'll pick it back up tomorrow. <laughs> I'll come back next week, but I need some mm-hmm. time off. I mean, that's that's all so important, and um, you know, I think that if we're going to hang in there for the long haul, we have to figure that out. And I'm still struggling to work on that. I mean, I was sick last week partly because I was pushing too hard and too much. Uh, so it's, it's a lifelong lesson. It, it is going to be for me. But it's, so, it's such an important one. Mm-hmm. Well, Naomi, we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your, the work you're singing, your hospice work, and some of the work that you're doing with the task force. So we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at 
thecenterforpeacellc.com. We're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And if you're just joining me, my guest today is Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart. Um, she is the Faith Work Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force, but she also likes to sing with the Philly Threshold Choir. And I'm going to tell you, that made me smile because um, I went through a period of time where I was the caretaker, and I had an aunt who was like in 94. 94 when she went into hospice and I would try and find music for her and I can recall once I was playing Johnny Mathis I still have it and a hospice worker came in who had an amazing voice and started singing one of the songs and it just sort of like lifted her up and took her back to a moment of her youth and Johnny was singing to her and it just, mm. you know, it, it, it took that, that time, which I often tell people, it, you know, we have to put together our time of mourning and sort of see it as that precious time to be there. And that song did that for her. How did you tell me a little bit about the Philly threshold choir and what is the work that you do with people who are in hospice care? Yeah, so I was scrolling Facebook one day, and a friend of mine posted a video. It was like a PBS or public radio video short um, made about the Threshold Choir. And so um, he, he posted the video and had such beautiful things to say about it. So I watched it, and it told the story of Kate Munger, who is a singer who is based in California, who had a friend who was dying and in hospice care. And she visited the friend, and she sat there by his bedside sort of helplessly. She didn't know what to say. You know, words seemed insufficient. And she thought to herself, well, I, I, know, I know how to sing. That's, that's the gift I can offer. And so she started singing. And she saw that his bodily agitation decreased. You know, she felt less anxious being there because she was singing. It was just she said she had tapped into something that, was a very ancient, you know, um, space of human connection to use music as a way to um, support and as a way to heal. Um, so she started Threshold Choir in, there in California, and she named it such because she wanted the choir to be able to um, sing, people, sing to people who were in the thresholds of life, like that, that space between life and death people who were crossing, crossing the threshold and just needed, you know, audible kindness uh, mm -hmm. to accompany them on, on their journey. So she started the Threshold Choir then, and um, all these years later, I think it's been 15 years. I'm not sure about that. But um, there are now over, uh, over 100 Threshold Choirs, um, not just in the United States but around the world. Um, and so I – Immediately after I saw that video, I Googled to see whether or not there was a threshold choir in my area, and lo and behold, there is a Philadelphia one. And so I reached out and said I was interested in what's the audition process and how could I get involved, and I, and I joined the choir. Um, we, you know, rehearsed twice a month, and um, 
are in relationship with various hospice programs in the city um, such that we are hospice volunteers, and our volunteer role is to, to come and sing um, to patients who, who consent to that. I mean, there's, there's mm-hmm. got to be the consent. Um, and, you know, because I'm not involved in pastoral ministry right now in the, in the congregational sense, this has really provided me a space to provide pastoral care. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those couple of minutes that we're sitting at somebody's bedside, we are, we are doing the holy work of, of um, pastoral accompaniment. And um, we don't sing uh, explicitly religious songs because we, never, we don't know much about the person's religious uh, tradition or whether they would want that. Um, but we have, there are a couple of songs in our repertoire that have been repurposed. Um, so the, the tune is, is of a religious song, but um, the words are not, are not explicitly religious. Um, so uh, I'm able to also, you know, like we sing Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there's something about even if you are living with dementia or even if you're you're not really um fully conscious there's something about music that that um transcends illness and like there's memory in the notes and so to see people connect to the sounds even as they're not really well uh it's just a remarkable thing um so i really my schedule doesn't allow me to sing as often as I would like uh, anymore, but I really uh, find it to be a, a ministry. It's a gift to me um, just as much as it's a gift to the patients we sing to. You know, and I think that that is, to me, that, you know, often, and I've talked to people like, um, I was talking to the, uh, the Charlotte Clergy Coalition, and one of the people who I was talking to was talking about, you know, how that they did their pastoral work didn't always have to be within a church. And I think that what you're doing is so important because I'll tell you, that person, after they sang Johnny Mathis, then they sang uh, Precious Lord. And you could see, you know, I mean, it was just like, like you said, where's that person at? And, and to give them that relief and that peace. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up, you know, and, and see if yeah, there's one totally. here because I thought, you know, how it doesn't have to be, you know, what you think. You don't know what it's going to be to help this person ease into this transition. But music, song, has a spirituality in and of itself. Right, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like to me that when, when, at, once, you, once you came out, <laughs> Once you came out as a, and embraced your 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 religious your religious calling, that you incorporated into to many of the things that that you do right then and there in your community. And I tell you, I fell out when I saw the topic of of your class when you said how you had talked about you know the zombies. <laughs> the zombies and Lazarus and all that. I mean, which kind of sort of makes sense, but. How do you, did you come up with that? And when you put that out that this is what you were going to talk about, what was the reaction? Well, so I'm teaching a class called on uh, Theology and Science Fiction. And so uh-huh. uh, it's... Which I love. It's, you know? 
it's, mm-hmm. I mean, partly because I'm a sci-fi geek, uh, and all, partly because, you know, uh, the students I teach are not necessarily theology majors, but they all have a requirement to take theology classes. And so the extent to which we can make the theology classes very interesting um, and sort of unexpectedly, um, you know, fulfilling, uh, we're, we're going to try to do that. And so I'm teaching this, this theology and sci-fi class. Um, and the thing is, I wanted to be able to, to do some serious theology work and do some fun stuff like watching sci-fi. And so, mm-hmm. and I wanted to use the Bible. It, 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 I'm teaching at a Catholic school, and so the Bible is, is the central sacred text um, of um, the theology and religious studies classrooms. So I wanted to absolutely be able to connect the Bible, which is full of very, uh, a variety of genres, um, there's poetry in the Bible, there's um, the songs in the Bible, and there's apocalyptic text in the Bible. And so I wanted to connect that apocalyptic text to apocalyptic um, sci-fi stories. And so that particular night in class, that's what we did. We connected um, zombie films. Uh, specifically, we talked about I Am Legend that particular night. Mm. Um, and the uh, stories in the Bible that involve this sort of walking dead idea. We have people who were once dead and then they, and then they get up and walk again. And so uh, that, that was the connection we were trying to make and um, uh, talking about why zombies in sci-fi are always dangerous and always the enemy and you have hum- humans trying to kill the zombies and, you know, what, is it, what are the zombies trying to tell us? Um, how do we get to a zombie uh, situation? Usually there's some catastrophe and government has fallen or, you know, there's been some natural disaster that we were unprepared for or whatever. So, so we talked about all of that um, and the theological implication of, of all of that. So it was a pretty interesting class. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and I think that's so great that, that like you said, you're using that you're having these conversations because I know um, it was with, with someone else who who was like who said like if you're just preaching and teaching and no one's following what did he say he said then you're just really out for a walk you know so, right. he said you have to find ways that that you engage and bring other people in and like you said many young people and and not so young look at things differently and to to sort of using that to have that conversation, I, uh, I, I bet you, you know, I, the next time if you offer that, there'll be more people like, you know, take that class, you know. It's not your boring theological class. And to even to get people to start to, to think along that way, like you said, you know, you didn't immediately jump right in. You had to, you had to find a way and go like, okay, well, let me go and check this out. Let me see this. Let me see that. And to sort of say that, it's not your your daddy or your mommy's religion. It's not their theology. It's a different way of doing it. But from your peers, I've talked to people even to sort of say, well, you know, uh, you know, well, the Bible has been both a tool of oppression but also a tool of liberation. And I have yeah. had um, some people with a collar sort of look at me like, you know, like, 
it's always liberation. No, no, it's been used <laughs> like that. So to have, you know, I mean, but to, to have that and to be able to, to think critically about it and to look at what it's been and what are the messages of it. Did you, when you found it, did any of your peers who are also teachers go like, what you talking about? <laughs> what you talking about, Naomi? You know, zombies, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have had people sort of respond um in a kind of, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> but, you know, you know, it's not it's not really interesting. It's more like, that's bizarre. That's what they really want to say, or that's, <laughs> that, seems, that seems inappropriate, or that, mm-hmm. you know, that seems, you know, how can you not, this is such a spiritual text, and how dare you uh, talk about zombies in the Bible in the same conversation. You know, I, there, there is a way that people don't think this is serious, holy work. You know, this isn't the soul-saving work. You know, and um, that's just unfortunate because I think that uh, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and asking critical questions of the text is actually what demonstrates how seriously we take the text, um, that we engage it, we wrestle with it, we ask questions of it, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't had too much kind of blatant criticism. Nobody's been hostile towards me. Um, I think at this point people just can't expect me to be doing something that might be off the wall anyway, so. <laughs> well, you know, but it, it, it's relevant and also, I mean, which sort of takes you into, takes us into the work that you're doing with the task force. Okay, there are people who are in our community who you still hear, and I, you know, I went to a thing like last year, and I still heard people talk about how, oh, and they went to church and how hurtful the church was. Because, you know, even though everyone knew they were gay, but they still said these things, and I'm going to myself, like, then why, why the holy heck are you still going there and giving them your money every week? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you hear young people who, you know, I know a young person who will tell you, you know, you say, well, what is, what is your religion? And she'll tell you, my community is my religion. So there, isn't it important that, particularly as we talk about a movement, as we talk about the LGBTQIA and everyone around there who are going to come to things like who look at the task force, who come to Creating Change, who are looking to make sense out of this jacked-up world we have, that, you know, that there are lessons, there are ways to, to look at and interpretations not just like swallowing the Kool-Aid, but to use these messages, these things that are coming out of the Bible, the, the sense of community that some people can find from church, that you don't have to totally run from it, to address the hell we're living in right now. So how do you see your work? I mean, and as you went into going to the task force, did you see this as part of, your mission, that how do you see your, your mission where you're really feeling what you've experienced in life and then going into what some people will say is like the establishment, the gay establishment, and, and shaking it up, making it different, saying to, to our community that, you know, we hear you. We're doing work on this. Yeah, it has been um... – it has been an interesting journey to be uh, sort of not only a part of the gay ink sort of establishment, but, but mm-hmm. be part of, of religion ink, you know, to be 
to be um, a professional religious person. And, you know, I always try to keep at the forefront of my mind, um, number one, how, well, how can I demonstrate that the stakes are high for, for me? I mean, I, you know, I do the work that I do because the stakes are high. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if we don't decolonize God, if we don't snatch God back from empire, uh, then people are going to die in God's name. Mm-hmm. That's, those stakes are pretty, pretty high. Uh, and so I always try to keep the high stakes at the top of my mind. Um, and I also try to, to, to maintain a sense of accountability. Who am I accountable to in doing this work? Um, if my loyalty is to the church establishment or my loyalty is to the gay ink establishment, then that means that my decisions are going to be very different from if my loyalties are actual to actual people. Um, my loyalty is to the, the folks sitting in the pews every week. Or my loyalty is to the queer kids who don't have a place to lay their heads at night, right? So identifying my loyalties and, and my accountability uh, communities um, is also key. Um, but I think it's my job to disrupt wherever I go. Um, Sometimes my disruption is because of my queerness. Sometimes it's because of my womanness. Sometimes it's because of my blackness. But the fact of the matter is, most places I show up to, uh, I am the disruptor, whether I'm trying to be or not. And so mm-hmm. just, just embracing that role and using that role to do good, you know, good things, <laughs> um, that's, that's how I see my work. So my being at Villanova at a Catholic school, um, living in this body, uh, that's disruptive. Um, the sci-fi course that I'm teaching, for example, you know, we're reading sci-fi that has been produced by communities of color, uh, black mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that is disruptive. So every, at every opportunity, I'm able to disrupt. Um, I'm able to preach a different kind of sermon. I'm able to teach a different kind of Bible study. I'm able to interpret a, a, a biblical text in a different kind of way. I mean, so... Uh, that's, that's the work, and it's exhausting and lonely and isolating sometimes, but um, it's, it's, it's what I feel compelled to do. It's, I, I can't help but do it. You know, and I, I like that, that you say that about being disruptive, because, I mean, really, that's what needs to happen. How do you, and you, and you say you use a lot of, like, when you walk in, you're doing that, but how then do we, and, I, and you know, and I have a, a moment of being disruptive or, or two, um, how do we say to others that it's okay to be disruptive? To also, and, and the other thing that we have, we're both black women, that being disruptive does not mean that you are the angry black woman. You know, how do you, how do you break out of that silo? And I, I'm sure that often that, now, I mean, you know, your reputation precedes you. <laughs> when you walk in, do you get people to, like, let their barriers down to recognize that because you are this disruptive individual, that disruptive does not mean that you are destructive um, and to yeah. open their minds? Yeah, I, you know, I admit that I don't spend much time anymore trying to make myself more um, digestible for people. Because, um, you know, 
I used to, and it was like a full-time job to try to soften, mm-hmm. the, soften the landing and let me preface and let me, you know. I, um, it just it, it started to violate my own sense of authenticity. Um, and so I don't spend a lot of time doing that. I uh, just try to be as transparent as possible up front, and people can decide whether what I have is what they want. Um, some people don't have the kind of appetite for what I bring, and that's fine. Um, so, you know, I try to be as, as transparent as possible. Um, but it, it really is on other people to have the courage to say, I'm not going to allow every other kind of stereotype living in my head to rule this interaction with Naomi. I'm going to encounter Naomi as Naomi and experience her and then make a decision for myself about whether or not Naomi is somebody I want to speak to my congregation or, um, you know, make the speech or whatever it is. So uh, I I admit that I don't spend a lot of time making sure that I'm not uh, offending people, be offensive. Uh Do you find, though, um, in your, as working with the task force, that, that there's a role for you to be like the gatekeeper, like, okay, you, even though you might not be the person that they want to see, but at that table, there needs to be room for that voice. Do you find yourself being that gatekeeper to sort of using an organization to make sure that there is that dialogue, there is that, it doesn't get like into the silos that we have been notorious for getting into, which often means that we become stagnated and moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I will um, use the reputation and the, the weight of having the organization with me and behind me to influence conversations and influence tables. Absolutely. I think if we find ourselves in these organizations and, and with access to resources, uh, we have to use it so that the table can be made even wider. Uh, so yeah, I've absolutely done that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I know that you also talk on on on. Uh, I mean, which I think that another thing. Forget. I mean, we know that there's uh, a religious issue around LGBTQ rights, but you also have been involved in a coalition for reproductive justice. And you know, often what people have sort of said about the LGBTQ community, and it's like, okay, well, you want us to, especially around marriage, you want us to show up and support you about marriage, but where are you about here, and where are you about this? Where are you about reproductive justice? And I will say that black women, we have always got, and we've always been there, maybe not wearing our, our queer cape as loudly as we should, but we're there. How important is it to you now also in these, in these days to make sure that we show up about reproductive justice, that we, we show up about um, the survivors, of the Me Too movement, about sexual abuse, sexual assault? How important is it to you that you show up not just in all your glory, under wearing all your capes and be that voice? Oh, it's critical. I think our movement, actually, the progressive movement has been undermined and weakened by our refusal 
to get out of our silos and show up in solidarity for other people who are uh, hurting and suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, Gay Inc. lost when Gay Inc. decided to focus solely on marriage equality as the win for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Because clearly that was not the priority. That wasn't the biggest win we could get, would negotiate. Um, and for black and brown and poor and, and trans folks, uh, that wasn't, you know, that did nothing to preserve our lives, right? And mm-hmm. so we, we should have learned the hard way um, that focusing on a single issue or a single part of an issue is damning for, for us and for our movement. You know, Audrey Lord said we don't lead single-issue lives. And so mm-hmm. we, we, we cannot wage single-issue fights. That's, that's destructive. And, and it, 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 it rings hollow. To people, I mean, people approach organizations like uh, the task force and other national groups and say, "Where were you when I needed um, mm-hmm. you behind me for my issue?" Or, you know, I can't, I can't get anybody to call me back on X, Y, and Z. I mean, and, and so um, it behooves us to show up, even when it, we don't think it's about us. And, and the fact of the matter is, it's always about us, right? Reproductive justice mm-hmm. is a queer issue. Um, because building and preserving families is a queer issue. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we really shoot ourselves in the foot when we don't see it that way. Well, you know what, let's take a break, because then I want to uh, talk to you about all black lives matter and something that we often don't want to talk about, which is race. So we'll be right back. And if you're just joining me, this is Collections by Michelle Brown, and I am talking with the Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart, and we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here with the Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart. And, you know, we had started to talk about, you know, us not showing up. And, okay, and, and it's, it's almost like, you're going to say it's sort of schizophrenic, when, particularly when you're a black woman, okay, or a person of color, or a person of color and trans, because I, I often just telling people, I have been like, you know, Detroit, well, what used to be the cast quarter is now Midtown, and it's very gentrified. And I was down and I saw, if I, if I put on my, my queer cape, part of my queer tribe, but they were white. And I was sitting in a restaurant and I was sort of listening to them. And at one point, yeah, here this lovely, that here where I here, we're able to walk around and be there. 
But at the other part, listening to them talk, all I could think was like, damn, the colonizers have come in here and, you know, they don't care a bit more about if they saw me as a black woman out here getting assaulted, mugged, my rights, whether I have economic justice, anything, that they are in their own little bubble. And we see that. I see black queer women stepping up and speaking out, being very bold on all of these issues that do affect all of us. But I still see another part of the LGBTQ community that doesn't quite get it. And some days, you know, you get tired of sort of saying, hey, y'all, you know, this is our issue too. You, not only do you have that, but then you also have that whole, you, uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have put it that way. You also, you also have your faith cape too, you know. So right. you have to step in there with all of this. And doesn't it just get tired some days? Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, I, I'm, you know, every other day I'm exhausted. By the, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm quitting because uh-huh. I'm, <laughs> I'm tired. You know, and, and uh-huh. it, 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 you know, we sound like broken records. It's like you don't get it yet. You know, where have you been the last at least three or four years? You know, you don't, you don't have this down yet. Um, we still have to explain to you what intersectionality is, and we still have to explain to you uh, why this particular perspective is rooted in white supremacy, and we still got to, you know, it's, it's, it's just maddening. If I can read a book and find out, you can read a book and find out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the role of always being the teacher, always being the guide for people who want to learn, it's, it's just not, you know, that's not my work. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it, does, it does get exhausting. And um, I, one of the sessions that I'm going to um, lead at uh, the, our upcoming national conference is, is the title, Our Backs Are Not Bridges. Um, the, the idea mm-hmm. that, that our, you know, our bodies and our backs and our uh, minds and our, in, you know, intellectual and emotional labor is not available for, you know, consumption by well-meaning white folks. Um, mm. well-meaning people who are part of the establishment. Um, so, you know, how do we both serve the movement knowing that our voices, if our voices are not there, then the movement won't get it, um, and protect and preserve our own lives, our own sanity. Uh, so that's, that's what that session is going to be about, and I'm really interested in having that conversation with, with other people who find themselves exhausted. Uh, by mm-hmm. the, the constant maintenance of the, of the movement. You know, particularly now because, you know, it's like believe the survivors, me too. And how do you, do you, you know, it's almost like we want to rage about our stories. Yes, have compassion for all of our sisters, but then also in our black bodies, not only have we been assaulted and and been survivors and been victimized, but to the point where not only that, but there was a time when we were not even valued to where it was not as women that, that we were somehow tools. We were, we were seen as less than that it was okay to do all of that. And so there's that, it's that, that, that flip side where you want to be compassionate with our sisters who are now coming out and talking about things where, yes, 
it was awful that in their home that they were abused, that this has been a part of patriarchy for eons where women's bodies have been abused, taken advantage, and not only women, I'm not, we know that there's men who have also were abused and victimized, but primarily we're talking about women, but also that there's that part that we not only have that, but then there's that part of, of having been less than marginalized. We were seen like, okay, well, guess what? You've got uh, a cow, a horse, you've got a black woman, you can do whatever you want to her because they don't count. They're not women. So we have that historical rage. And then that compassion. Then you have to step out and speak. Particularly, I know often, I'm sure that in this place, that you have to step out and speak on this, about having the compassion about how women ha- uh, this is happening to women and it's, and it's believed as survivors. But how do we also bring our history in there, that history of rage, that history of racism that still needs to be addressed and, and dealt with? Yeah. Um, one of the things I tell my students all the time is that solutions – um, and notions of progress that are not rooted in an authentic telling of history will fall flat and are unsustainable. And part of the reason that our country, I believe, is in what it's in is because we keep telling this revisionist version of history. And so the solutions that we propose, the, the reforms that we support, fall short because they don't take seriously the whole account of history. So I think that that truth-telling about history, keeping at the forefront of people's minds the, the depth of oppression, the depth of suffering that people have been made to experience, um, is actually a critical part of uh, revolution. And people don't want to hear it. It makes them uncomfortable. They're like, we're sick of this. It's been, you know, all these years later. But, but the fact of the matter is, like, until we can tell the truth about the history, and that history that, that truth is held by us. You know, as you said, black women, we know the truth. You know, we were there when the most egregious things, we were the victims of the most egregious uh, things. And so, you know, I think that, that our rage is holy. Our rage is, is going to be cleansing. Uh, if, if we are allowed to tell the truth and express mm-hmm. it authentically. It, it is going to be what saves. And, and, and let me say that I, I have some feelings about, you know, the, this notion of black girl magic and, we, you know, black women save the world, you know, because I think that's a, a burden, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's, a, that's an unfair burden for us to bear. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that our rage and our truth-telling and our imaginations will be what actually cleanses and saves and purifies and uh, transforms this world. I believe that with all of my heart. So mm-hmm. um, it's, act- it, it's critical. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell you, um, last year after one of the elections and, you know, and black women had come out and I had a, a white woman come up to me and she said, I just want to thank you, black woman. And if more of you did that, and, you know, it was like, Oh, there was that one part of you that just wanted to slap her in the next week, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. and, but then at the other point, to like sort of like, I could have that conversation like, yes, but you know what? There's more of you, and you really need to come out and talk to your sisters and about them voting against their own best interests and doing it. But it is. It's like you said. It's like, 
you know, don't put that burden on me. But right. since you put that burden on me, let me stand up and tell you what it's all about. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I know you were here and um, for Queering Racial Justice, but you're coming home in January for mm-hmm. Creating Change yes. back to Detroit. Yeah. How does that feel? And in this, in this role of what you're going to do, because, you know, we're going to have people there from all over the world who are coming mm-hmm. to come for Creating Change, but there's going to be people here in Detroit. And what does it feel like coming home? And if there's a, a little Naomi out there on the east or west side, I didn't, I didn't determine which side you were from, but let's say there's a little Naomi east side, little Naomi west side, and they show up at Creating Change and they see you and they hear your message. What do you want to see to plant in their mind? Mm. Well, first and foremost, uh, I want them to know that they are not alone. One of the things that Creating Change does so powerfully is it brings together people who would not ordinarily meet. I mean, 4,000 people uh, converge on, in one place. And th- there is encouragement available uh, for people who have been feeling isolated, feeling like there's nobody else who has experienced what they've experienced, they've never met. I mean, I've, I meet people all the time who say to me, I've never met a black queer woman minister. That's just mm. I never even knew that people like you existed and could thrive and be joyful and have a job and, and you know, be legitimate, quote, unquote, right? And so the, the, the exposure to people who, uh, who have similar stories is, is key. And so I would say you can find in creating change that encouragement. Um, you know, I think the other thing is uh, the, the Creative Change Conference to me is primarily about leadership development and skill building. So I know that this administration has really engendered a, a, a feeling of helplessness among lots of people. Like, what can we do? We feel so outnumbered and we, we feel outspent and we feel tired. I mean, it's like how can we hold a candle to, you know, basically a Supreme Court seat that is paid for, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so it, it can feel like, you know, there's nothing we can do. But the Creating Change Conference is a place where we're actually helping people to build the skills needed to organize and resist. Um, and so you can come to Creating Change and learn uh, how to go back into your community and bit by bit turn the tide, you know, uh, and so, you, you know, we may not be able to, you know, burn the Supreme Court down, but we can certainly go back to our home communities and make sure that we've got judge, judges uh, in positions of power who are going to do right by our people, you know. And so uh, it's a skill-building conference, first and foremost, to me. Um, so so I, would, I would say that, that for the little girl in, in Detroit who, you know, is on the west side – <laughs> and, you know, it's part of a church community that, that may or may not accept her sexuality, her gender uh, uh, identity. Um, this can be a place where you can see yourself and where you can grow as a leader um, in community. Uh, so it, it'll be a great experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that, and it is, I think it's important, you know, 
as much as we want to keep Detroiters here, but it is important to see that this gift, that, that rooted foundation that you got here, you take and take out and go into the world and you're doing great work. You're living authentically. You have love. You have a family. I mean, you have pride. I love that future Oscar winning, <laughs> winning fifth grader. I mean, yes. and for many of us, you know, back in the day, you know, who and, and even now for particular members of the LGBTQ community who wonder, is that possible? And how great it is to yeah. see that, you know, Yes, you can leave, but you can come home again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so important to me that creating changes in Detroit. Um, I'm actually, I get to go home, you know, pretty relatively frequently. I mean, I know people who are from other places, and they don't, they don't get to go home. Maybe once a year, maybe once every two years, and I get to go home a couple times a year, which feels really good to me. Um, mm-hmm. But Detroit is the place to have this kind of conversation about revolution. It is the place. Um, mm-hmm. It is not a forgotten about city. I have a T-shirt that says Detroit still exists. You know, it isn't the 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 um, the sort of orphan city of the country. It isn't the forgotten about. There is life and vibrant and brilliant in Detroit, um, and so it means a lot to me that we're going to bring this conference there next year. Well, I am. Like I said, I am so, so happy to meet you, to have met you here. Oh, it's funny. I met you here, <laughs> even though you're there. I met you here and to know that you're coming back. And, and for the work that you're doing, I want you to be sure and get a lot of self-care. And I know that family does help. I mean, and um, that's really important. I'm going to give you is there any last words you want to tell people. Would you tell them? you know, how to get involved with creating change if they don't know already, because I've had a couple people on talking about it, but would you do that part one last time for me? Sure. So the Creating Change Conference uh, is going to be January, uh, let me make sure I have the dates right, Uh, January 23rd through the 27th. Let me make sure that's right. Yes, January 23rd through January 27th, 2019 in Detroit at the Marriott uh, Renaissance Center. And um, you can go to www.creatingchange.org to be kept abreast of workshop uh, topics and of keynote presentations and speakers. Uh, You can register there. We are always looking to make this an accessible conference for people. And so if you need a scholarship or a discount or if you're willing to give a few hours of volunteer service at one of our booths, um, in exchange for a, a reduced or no-cost uh, no registration. You can sign up for that at creatingchange.org. Um, and you can email me if you have any specific questions about what the faith programming at Creating Change looks like. We have an interfaith service that we do. We have a Shabbat service for Jewish community members. We have Muslim prayers um, for members of the Muslim community who come. We have a wellness room, a wellness space, so you can always go and decompress and get a massage and talk to people um, who will be a listening, uh, comforting, listening, non-anxious presence for you. Uh, and so if you want to know more about the faith programming in, in particular, you can reach out to me, um, and I'd be happy to talk about that. Uh, so go to creatingchange.org, 
the task force's website is thetaskforce.org. So either of those sites you can get to the Creating Change information. So should I plan on taking you to the Motown Museum and you and I will, will belt out a couple of songs? Oh, my goodness. I would love that so much. <laughs> oh, well, you know, they're doing work on it, but um, we have to have some, some sister time, you yeah, know, just to, hang out, just to hang Absolutely. out. And, yeah, you know. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Um, and, you know, ask, and I especially want to thank you for the work that you're doing with people in hospice care. Because like I said, you know, I was a caregiver. Mm. And that kindness that can come from someone else, mm-hmm. even if it's just in song. Because as hard as it, as it is for that person to let go, it's hard for us to let them go. But yeah. something that will ease that passage is just like so important. And I've seen it. And I thank you for that work. Thank you. It means a lot to me to hear you say that. And, um, you know, I just want to be of I want my life to be of service. I want my life to contribute. Um, and, um, you know, this is just a small way I can do that. Um, so thank you. And, and bless you for the, your commitment to amplifying our stories and to taking care of us in so many different kinds of ways. Thank you so much. Well, until January, you stay safe, stay well, and stay destructive. (laughs) I will. I can commit to that. (laughs) Okay. All right, Naomi. Thank you again. Thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Reverend Naomi Washington Leapheart, Faith Work Director for the National LGBTQ Task Force. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another Amazing individual, living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.